John Langry Podchest Ishk Chikanya Shank Chiaken Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me, Seek, where are you? I'm in Philadelphia. Okay, over in uh, Philly, we have Zeke, Ezekiel Forgemander. Hi, how are you guys doing? And over in Hawaii, we have Margaret Ransel Green. Hello. Yes, and uh, both of these people are on for the reason that uh, they are, you guys are both really good with uh, polysemy. Uh, Margaret, you did a talk at last last uh, year's LCC about it, right? And uh, I yeah. just I just recently managed to watch that. For some reason, I had not watched it before, but uh, oh, sure. that was that was interesting. And also, um, Zeke, if you look at Zeke's um, Lexember entries, those are a very good example of how to do like very rich dictionary entries right with lots of senses you can find uh you can find a margaret's talk on uh the uh, language creation society uh, youtube channel and yes. uh and uh my lexember stuff i i uh, keep all of that on twitter actually so my handle is uh at fordsmender that's f-o-r-d-s-m-e-n-d-e-r yeah yeah yeah, okay. my, my left number and everything is, I, I've done various things like that at different times. And that's all on Twitter for me as well. I'm, uh, my uh, handle is uh, MintakaGlow, M-I-N-T-A-K-A. Yeah, so that, some of my stuff is there, um, some of which is heavy with polysemy and some of it is not. But uh, yeah. yeah, all my lexicon stuff I tend to uh, put up there. Well, I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute. About uh, how much how much polysemy do you do you want to include in a language? But uh, first of all, before we get into the subject, I have to handle the money stuff. So, uh, Conlangery is entirely supported by our patrons. Uh, you go to conlangery dot uh, go go to patreon dot com slash conlangery to show your support. We've got some rewards there. Uh, a couple things about that. So, thanks to our patrons and me, you know, working out the numbers, uh, something that we've just recently been able to do is start doing transcripts of all episodes. So, uh, what what I have, um, based on the, the budget I've made for it, is I have somebody doing transcriptions of all new discussion episodes and then every month she's also going to do a past episode uh so that will take years to get through the back catalog <laughs> but it yeah. is yeah it, it is a way to get started on it so here's where the patreon comes in that takes money 
if I can get more money in the Patreon, then I can do something like, oh, I can get those transcripts done faster yeah. for, for the back catalog. Um, other things can be equipment. Just recently, uh, because of the, the money I had in my account from the Patreon, I got some acoustic foam for my recording he booth here. My daughter helped me set it up. Uh, helped, in quotes. Uh, but uh, she's, you know, poor. But um, so hopefully I will sound a little bit less like I am uh, recording in the middle of a bathroom. Because the storage room, yeah, it, it needed a little bit of improvement of the acoustics. So. And as you can hear right there, I had not gotten it totally figured out as to how to use the foam and how to actually get a good sound. But uh, right now I have a reasonably good solution. So hopefully episodes from here on out will sound good. With more money, you know, I could get like a better microphone, better, all, all kinds of better recording equipment. So that's other things. So well, it's a, that's fantastic news about the transcripts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, great. so this is this is just what I'm I'm telling you guys is uh, the more I can get for the Patreon, more interesting things I could do for the show. I could do you know more shows. I can get the transcripts done faster. I could get better equipment. I make the experience better for you, the listener. So. Patreon.com slash Conlangery. Uh, and there's several different tiers of there. Um, now, uh, full disclosure, my two guests today both happen to ha be uh, pledging the highest tier. I do have to note that is not a way that you can get your way on the show. It's just that they also happen to be very good Conlangers that I wanted to talk to. So, again, well, Patreon.com. I'm thrilled to be the subject of a full disclosure. I, you know, yeah. I, I, I imagined yeah. myself to be something of a rebel when I was a teenager. And if you went back in time and told 18-year-old Zeke that he would someday be the subject of a full disclosure on the Conlingy <laughs> podcast, he would just be very tickled. Yeah. All right. So, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, anyway, let's 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 go. So patreon.com slash conlangery. Go there, show your support. Now, let's get into the topic, which is polysemy. So um what is polysemy? It it is specifically when one word has multiple meanings, usually multiple related meanings. And and to that, I think we could add uh, when one when one word has multiple usually related meanings, and then they develop uh, from each other through metaphorical extension, for example. So it would be separate from homophony, in which uh, through uh, you know the process of sound change, uh, two different words come to sound uh, the same, but have different semantics. Right, and that's a crucial distinction when you when you're talking about this because. Uh, we do, in a naturalistic conlang, want both of these things to happen. Uh, you, want, you want both polysemy and homophony to happen. Now, there are, there are times also when uh, 
a homophone homophones can like give me a second. I'm gonna be right back. Sounds good. Okay. All right. I'm back. I have my book here that I am looking at. And uh okay. I'm sorry. Let's 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 reel back again. Um let's let's start out because I want to I want to get the foundation firm. So let's let's think what's what would be a what's a concrete example of polysemy? Something like uh run, uh for example. So so um the river uh, the river runs north versus um uh I ran a six minute mile. You know. Right. Um, yeah. I I think that's I think that's a pretty clear example. Right. Right, and so the the, uh, the 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 connection there is they're both sort of involving motion. I think the older mm-hmm. the older meaning is like running a six minute mile. It's running as in the 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 action that of of running with your legs. It's a particular exactly. game, and then yeah. a river running is is an extension of that metaphorically to just indicate fast motion Um, right yeah so and if you look in a dictionary run has tons and tons of different meaning but Mm -hmm. like that's 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 a clear illustration whereas a homophone would be more like um is is something like lead so lead can be the past tense of lead or it can be the element lead, and that is just coincidental that those happen to sound the same. That's homophony, right? Right, and to some extent, you are going to end up with both of these in a naturalistic conlang, um, because like that's just how it ends up. So let's start off with talking about strategies for building polysemous words and how how do each of you approach that um margaret maybe we'll start with you um yeah so the way that i start to build a polysemous word kind of tends to have two directions and this kind of throws back a little bit to something that i mentioned in my um presentation at the lcc um where i, I talked about how conlanging can influence on culture as well as the other way around. We normally think of culture influencing language, but if you are more interesting in, interested in conlanging, maybe, uh, you may find that over time, a lot of your lexicon may influence decisions that you make about any corresponding culture. And that's something that I kind of do a lot just because I find it easy and I find it sort of a natural fluid way to go. Um, a lot of times I'll come up with a primary word and then think about sort of semantically adjacent concepts to that particular word. So some examples I have um, is sort of semantic shifts, either in subtle or maybe not so subtle directions. So um, a recent word uh, that I had created was one in the Rilan language, which is teme, which means to make, literally it's to make into a rock or a stone. And so the sort of literal meaning 
associated with that is to carve something into stone, but also to harden something or calcify, essentially. And so there's the literal meanings of the very physical sort of um, transformation of carving something into stone or making something hard like stone, but then it also has kind of metaphorical extensions, like to solidify, like you can solidify your plans or you can solidify your, uh, you know, ideology or anything like that. Um, and then another extension beyond that was to complete um, or to fill. And so I kind of, it's sort of like a dot to dot picture where you start off with a primary, usually concrete meaning, and then kind of branch out from there. Um, and sometimes you have to take things like culture into considerations, but sometimes it's just sort of more cognitive conceptual stuff. So that's kind of one of the techniques that I use. And then the kind of reverse of that is to use parts of the con culture that I already know about, that I've already decided on, and integrate those into a polysemous word. Like, there's another word in Rilin, which is Zika, which means seasoned or spiced. And it originally meant with a particular spice that was an imported spice. Um, and then it kind of um, became generalized to just mean seasoned as a food, generally. Um, but there was another extended meaning of something that is altered, something that's been altered from its natural state. And from there, you get the even farther meanings of unusual or strange or even unnatural. Um, and my thought was that, well, maybe this is because native Reland foods are not necessarily heavily spiced with this particular substance. And it is a mark of something that is um, foreign in some way. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of two sort of basic techniques I use to kind of creatively expand on a word's meaning and make it a little bit semantically richer. Yeah. Those, that, that's really interesting, the way that you do that. There was one, I believe, where you uh, had a word for, like, maritime things. This is in your presentation. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, and because the, like, the sea goddess was, I think, associated with peace, is it? Yeah. Um, yeah, then it, it, it got extended into, like, following her religion and also and also being peaceful or tranquil. And uh, that led to interesting associations. And that, the, what that made me think of is like real world word histories that are similar in certain ways. Like uh, this, is, this is breaking away from polysemy and thinking more about etymology, which is related. Like you can mm -hmm. do, you use the same techniques for both, but like, right. The word cynic. So let me right. double check this. What cynic dictionary? Right. It's it's derived from an ancient Greek word meaning dog-like. Right. Right. Yeah. But so like that makes no. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English. Like why <laughs> why why did this thing that means dog? But if you follow the chain of events of this one, the philosopher was called a, a dog. Uh, this one ancient Greek philosopher was called a dog, uh, like as a as an epithet or a or or like pejoratively, um, because of his behavior. 
And then his line of philosophy became called cynicism, which it's still cynic can still mean a follower of that in particular. But because of aspects of that philosophy, it also means a totally different thing. Someone who's like uh, seeing all the uh, negatives in society and is apathetic about uh, about it. Uh, right. Is yeah. So like that's. That kind of like chain of events where each word has a story is a very interesting uh, thing. Yeah. Zeke, I'm going to move to you for a second. Like, what kind of techniques do you do? Because I look at your dictionary entries and you have like 10 or 20 meanings sometimes in a word. And I'm just like, where, where does this, like, where did this start? <laughs> And where, how, how is it going? <laughs> well, I, I have to take a lot of notes so I don't forget where, uh, where I am while, I, while I'm working on it. But uh, it, was, it was very interesting to hear Margaret's uh, LCC presentation because she talked about her bidirectional approach from con culture into conlang, from conlang into con, uh, con culture. And before I heard that, I didn't really have, you know, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. And it's always interesting when you hear somebody else discussing something similar to what you're doing and you have this context outside of yourself to think about, you know, your own, uh, your own work. And so I am definitely a, uh, a conlang into a con world person. All of my, uh, all of my work on, uh, on the culture uh, behind my uh, projects exists within my projects and uh and all the con worlding happens uh within the lexicon essentially and so mm -hmm. i i don't know the people as well as uh some other um uh conlangers would some other con worlders would um because i'm kind of just discovering them as i go along and so uh, my my process is uh, fairly hands-on you know I, I like to create my words by hand i don't really use a uh, uh, a word generator like awkwards, for example. You know, I, I do stuff on notebook paper, and then once I have a word, I, I try to. I, it helps me remember vocabulary too. And once I have a word, I try to live with it and try to imagine uh, how it would, how I would use it if I were a, a native speaker of this language, and how it might begin to shift and uh, and uh, change over time. Um, right. And as as an example, a, a couple of years ago, I was um, thinking about. So my my uh, primary project is in uh, a priori language called Cariole, and mm -hmm. uh, Cariole I felt was becoming very relaxy, and so I decided to blow up the vocabulary and just take all of these words that I felt were too close to English, and to uh, cut them apart and look at the individual senses. And I started doing this with words for um, breaking and cutting. And uh, I realized that, you know, you can, you can take senses for breaking and cutting and you can essentially put them in two different categories. There's, there's uh, manner-based verbs and, um, and result-based verbs. So like a, a manner-based verb of cutting or breaking would be like a cut with a knife or chop with an axe. Uh, whereas a result-based uh, verb would be like cut into little pieces or tear apart. So Cariole itself is really fastidious about tracking transitivity. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine that this would probably 
exist in the semantics of the language too. And so I kind of shunted all of the manner verbs, all, all, all the verbs whose semantics were concerned with how an object was cut or broken. And I put those aside and I started focusing on um, uh, the result ones. And so I came up with these two uh, different verbs. Uh, both mean snap, and both you know they're they're both um, uh, not concerned with how an object is snapped. You know, if I step on it or if I break it over my knee or you know if I crack it between my teeth. But they differ in in the resulting pieces. So um, are, uh, for example, means to break with frayed edges, and huba is to break with clean edges. Oh. And so, once you have these two words, then you know, you know, you, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in my apartment, I'm in my kitchen, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, uh, if I'm cooking, which which one of these words would I use? If you're tearing apart say, an orange, or you're, you know, you're breaking apart meat with your hands, uh, you have a uh, an instance of breaking something with frayed edges, and. Once you're there, you can begin to think about, you know, may maybe this verb could also be used for uh, whittling wood. And from there, um, something a little bit less concrete, like uh, like needling someone or, or uh, wearing someone down, leaving them with frayed edges. Uh, you know, and the same thing happens with your verb to snap with clean edges. Uh, and I remember I was in the kitchen and I was breaking off this little square of uh, chocolate from a bar and thinking about how, you know, the two resulting pieces were intact and how that would probably be important to the semantics of the word huba. Uh, and so from to break with clean edges, that word evolved into uh, uh, a verb that means to, to separate two people having an argument. Um, and it's also the word um, uh, for to give birth, as it, afterwards both, both parties are intact. And uh, so, so these words uh, they don't they, they don't evolve from within um, the con culture, and in the, they honestly could could exist in, in any language, um, but they they do exist in Cariol, um because of some uh, peculiarities of Cariol syntax. Oh, okay, yeah, that's that 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 was very interesting, and that whole thing to me was a very interesting um uh, I, I am just now realizing that you guys both have a bunch of notes in my doc that I had not seen before now. Um so uh the that's that's a very interesting uh point there is that um the one one thing that you you're doing there that I really like um well we covered I covered this on a short earlier is you think about the the lexicon as a whole system in the first place, where you are like thinking about these breaking and cutting uh, verbs, which I believe we I we've cited a paper about that earlier. Uh, I might be able to find that, and you built in like the system of how those are put together and and distinguished in the language. Then that led to further like substances of some of those. So that's a very interesting thing to to keep in mind is is like you start with something that's you know working with your language system and then uh, moving out from that. So um, let's actually move into this. Um, I'm very glad that that uh, you guys have uh, done some some work here, but uh, let's actually 
say, uh, let's 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 back up here and say, okay, we have some notes here about why why do polysemy? Uh, we I, I mentioned up the, at the top, like natural languages have polysemy. It's realistic to have them. Uh, let's let's keep on sort of uh, moving through here. So realism and hyperrealism. What's what what's hyperreal about that? Sure. Um, so I I think that um, uh, so hyperrealism is is I would say the ideal aesthetic that I'm trying to accomplish in my own projects. Uh, which is very, you know, difficult to do um, as as one person working on a con line. Uh, hyperrealism, I would say, uh, involves uh, complex loanword strategies, borrowings and reborrowings, uh, doublets, complex polysemy and homophony, uh, in-depth um, uh, historical language work. Um, realism, I would say, is the best approximation you can you can achieve in a realistic amount of time and so in order to avoid you know having to come up with you know like two dozen you know, sketch lengths to borrow words into to build up your vocabulary uh you can focus on uh, your native vocabulary and accomplish an amount of realism by using um polysemy for example and introducing some homophony and beyond that I'd say it's a it's a necessary part of art langing because it does keep you from relaxing your own language, uh, and I, and I think I, I do think there are probably about as many reasons to uh, participate in this hobby as there are people doing it. But I think that we all agree that um, one of the tremendous benefits of of uh, con langing and learning about language is that it really opens your eyes to the uh, the beauty of your own native language. And and one of the ways you uh, you can really involve yourself in that is by uh, consciously not relaxing it and being very aware of um, you know how, how meanings in your own language uh, have developed over time. And uh, I I do know that there there is a uh, a contingent within the conlanging community, and I, and I know this personally because I used to be one of these guys uh, who who feel that. Um, that syntax is where like the real work is done, you know, and that um, you know there's uh, something uh, there's some something second rate to people who fiddle around with their vocabularies. But I think that uh, if you're interested in doing um, grammaticalization, you're already working with polysemy. And so I, I have this note here. I love the English word to get. It's such a you know simple commonplace word you know it's not as uh it's not as agentless as uh receive is but it doesn't have the gusto that attain or acquire do it uh it's a it's generic it's somewhere in between and git has developed one of my favorite grammatical uh grammaticalization tendencies it's past tense uh has become a, a verb of possession to uh mm -hmm. so we can say uh, I got some money on me, meaning I have some money on me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful metaphor. You know, I've already received it. I, I have it. And then from there, in contemporary English, it's beginning to replace um, uh, have in auxiliary constructions, um, which I think is really, really pretty cool. And it speaks to this uh, universal tendency for verbs of possession 
to be used in these in these uh, constructions. Um, and, I, and it's also used in um, that, that passive construction. Um, you know, he got punched, for example. And it's interesting, too, that the he got punched uh, construction, there's, there's something a little bit different about that than he was punched. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's just like a, some, like a very subtle semantics there. And um, we should talk it, uh, later on about um, synonyms and how synonyms are kind of a fallacy and how they don't really exist, maybe, or maybe they do. But mm-hmm. when, when, when two words begin to approach each other, it seems that we're very, um, the human mind really wants to keep them as separate as possible. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you what the difference between he got punched and he was punched is. Um, but it is, there is a difference there. Maybe he, when he got punched, he was looking for it in some way. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. There, there are, um, I think that got passives, not always, but uh, sometimes do actually involve some sort of in, intentionality on the patient, which is a weird thing because the, the whole thing about passives is they're, they're, they're promoting the patient, right? Right. But this is, got passives are promoting the patient even more, like the patient is already like an instrumental now. Um, but uh, just just getting sort of back from that, like talking about get, like do not overlook polysemy in your, uh, first of all, in your constructions, which we, we have uh, talked about that when we, when when you talked about constructed construction grammar, uh, when when we talked about constructions specifically and and how they can be polysemous themselves, uh, mm-hmm. but also your small words, your small words. If you are making a dictionary that is like thorough to the degree of real dictionaries, they will have page-long entries with lots of different senses. I read a book a while ago, Word by Word by Corey Stamper, and she has a whole chapter about how she got the word take to review. Um, I believe it was take. Um, But it was a a small, simple word, and she thought it would be easy. But she started reading the, the senses and realized that this was going to take a very long time because there are a ton of different senses that she all she had to verify. It was at a time when when she was still using index cards to handle things. So she had her entire desk, like she started out with just sorting out nouns and verbs. And then it ended up with her entire desk on the floor, like spreading out of her cubicle were stacks of index cards covering all of the senses of take, trying no. to like <laughs> verify and and see if she needed to split or merge census. So yeah, the those those little words get complicated. Like get get is particularly like hard to pin down. Non-native speakers have a lot of trouble with like what what get means. 
Yeah. And translators have trouble translating it into other languages because it's like, I have to know like exactly what everything else, like the whole sentence means before I know what, what verb to use there. I, actually, um, yeah, throw it, throwing it to Margaret. Like, do you talk about like the cultural terms, which are usually sort of uh, larger like content words, but like, do you do the same level of polysemy on small words like that? Um, yeah, like, so a lot of the basic sort of common verbs or what you would call like small words, I think have. Yeah, some of the highest potential for polysemy because because of their sort of frequency and flexibility, they take on many different shades of meaning and many different usages. And so, because of that, I think that it's a really great place to go with polysemy. And so, a lot of my sort of, I guess, what you would call common verbs in some of my languages do have like many primary senses and it's hard to really tease apart like which is the primary meaning um for a lot of these um it's one of the things that it, when i was thinking about polysemy it, it also made me think about a lot of the lexicography that i've done for real world languages and the sort of challenge behind how to design a dictionary and how to include senses of individual words and how to decide which comes first in the ordering, like which is considered a primary sense or a secondary sense and so on. And I think that sometimes when you're uh, creating those sort of collections or clusters of senses, it's really easy to realize that there are actually like sub-branches of senses there may be like a primary, secondary, and tertiary sense. And then off of each of those, they kind of have, it, it kind of, it, it starts to have like a branching structure or like bifurcated structure in some, in some mm -hmm. cases. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good uh, note. One thing that can ha that you can do um, in terms of, I, I say small words just as a, like a catch-all. It's not really a technical term. Um, sure, yeah. One thing that can get really polysemous is functional words. And there, I think a really good thing to do is to actually just translate stuff. And like, like as you are finding uh, that you need some sort of a functional relationship here, try to use stuff that you already have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With this doctor key, I, had, I have um, a small list of prepositions. I have... I have like two, I have two different classes of inflecting prepositions and then non-inflecting. But like for uh, when I was doing the, the syntax tests, like I was running into things where I kind of want to use a preposition here. Uh, I want to use one of the ones I already have, which one will work? So like I had a, a, like an issue of like I was trying to make a, a durative constructive and like, uh, you know, we have we have lived here for so so long time, and uh, I didn't want to use anything new, so I just like make up new stuff. I just so I just like okay, I have this preposition, uh, mahok. Uh -huh. It uh, it is generally uh, for um, uh, like 
the source of something and also for inalienable possession. Uh, so maybe I can throw that in as also meaning like during and then that and that seemed to work for me. <laughs> so I ended up with that. And I think I, I used um, like another like different pseudo genitive preposition that to mean like uh, the the apok I need think can be used for like at a specific moment in time. I'm not sure. I'd have to I'd have to go back and actually look it up again. But uh, so yeah, so that's that that's that's like a part of what real languages do, and a part of what you can do is like as you like. S try to start out with the, the the functional words and like whatever cases, whatever TAM marking you want. And then as you come up with situations where you need something, try to see if your existing material can be applied to that in an interesting way. Yeah, that's definitely a really good point. That's also what I found myself doing. Like, I um just looking at my own lexicon while you were talking about a word for like four um you know x period of time the word in real end that I use for like for and during and while is all the same word because I just was um you know didn't want to make extra sort of uh material that I didn't need mm -hmm. uh, Margaret may I ask you I I'm the only one out of the three of us who's not trained as a linguist and uh and so. Um, so I've got a pen out. I'm taking notes on this here. Um, when, when you when you are working um, with uh, with a natlang yeah. uh, professionally, and you are and you are drafting um, a lexicon, what is the best practice for determining which sense goes first? Uh, is it is it the oldest sense, or is it the most common sense that you list first? Or it really depends on a lot of factors, a lot of real world factors that actually aren't mm -hmm. so um, relevant for conlanging since you are potentially the user of your dictionary. A lot of what we consider in lexicography, uh, at least from what I do with work on um, endangered and indigenous languages, uh, is to consider who's going to be using the dictionary and what will probably be the most useful. Um, but what I do um, in terms of conlang, because there's no like a reference that I need. I don't have to be like, well, gotta look at a corpus because there isn't one besides what I determine. I usually try to do what is the primary sense and like what is the most common use for this word, like in my mind. If I were to just say, what does this word mean? What would somebody respond with? And that may or may not be like chronologically the first meaning because a lot of my words, um, actually, their primary meaning, like their primary contemporary meaning, is not the one that it started out with. There's a word that originally meant a food that was roasted termites. And it uh, changed to mean, to sort of semantically broaden, to mean like any small finger food that you could eat, like you know, like, it, you know, nuts or anything, it wouldn't matter, like, specifically what it was. It was more just, like, how you ate it. And so now I would definitely say that in Reland, that word, its primary sense now is, like, basically finger food. Uh, and its primary sense is no longer its chronologically 
original scent because they don't really do termites as much anymore as a food source. I, I think uh, a way to break this down for listeners, I'm not, I'm not in lexicography. I was a phonetician, so I don't really do this. But I think a way to break this down for our listeners is, are you writing the Oxford English Dictionary or are you writing Merriam-Webster's? Yeah. The reason I, I give those examples is the Oxford English Dictionary is a historical dictionary. So they list them in chronological order based on the earliest citation, right? That, that, that's how you lay out an etymological or historical dictionary. Merriam-Webster's is everyday reference dictionary for people who are like writing or, or like looking up a word that they read. And that is the way that you described, Margaret, is they're, they're trying to identify like the most common sense and put it first. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's going to depend. And I feel that for Conlangers, probably you're writing Merriam-Webster's or even, even more like you're writing, you're really what you're writing is a bilingual dictionary, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about it also in terms of when someone is, when you yourself are looking up words, like what you want to have in your mind first as what the translation of that word is, uh, because that's going to be like the core meaning. And also, uh, I think that's actually a, a sort of sub, like, nugget of this is like, since like, you guys like both do like all this all this work to work out different senses. How much are you thinking about the amount of detail you add to each sense? Because like if it's mainly a reference for yourself, but both of you guys do present yourself publicly, like I always think about I'm I'm always thinking about if I'm writing a, a an entry as like, am I just writing the gloss of this or am I writing enough information that I know how to use this word correctly and not end up using it as a relax of whatever English gloss I listed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I I try to um, I try to present as much detail as I possibly can to keep everything fresh in my mind so that I can remember the, um, the, uh, the process that, that led me. I, actually, I've, I've got an example right here. Um, this is from this year's Lexember, and this is a, fairly, this is a, a word with a fairly long uh, uh, trail of senses behind it. Uh, the word is punzuo, um, uh, and it means primarily to, to play, but it has 19 senses. And um, <laughs> the, the first is, and, and I'll just, I'll just read, I'll, I'll try to keep this from sounding like I'm reading from the phone book, but I'll just read what I have here. Uh, so sense one is to, to play, to recreate, to pass one's time amusing oneself for no other purpose than for entertainment, to hang out, to have a good time. Uh, two, to play as children do, to run around and make believe. Three, uh, to play a sport or a game. Four to play a keyboard, stringed, or percussion instrument. Five, uh, to toy with, to trifle with, to be frivolous with, to be flippant with someone or something in an otherwise serious situation. Uh, six, to fiddle with, to fidget, uh, not to know what to do with one's hands. Mm. 
Uh, seven, to use oneself or, or others to humor or to indulge. Uh, eight, to adjust or to adapt to. Uh, nine, uh, to be nimble, to be clever with one's hands. Uh, ten, to compromise, to negotiate. Uh, Eleven, to be acceptable, to be okay, to be an option. Uh, Twelve, to frustrate, to vex, or to thwart. Uh, Thirteen, to blast or blight of the weather or disease of plants, for example. Uh, Fourteen, to outwit, to outsmart, to outfox, to beat by correctly anticipating one's opponent's opponent's next moves. Uh, Fifteen, to tease, to poke fun at. Uh, Sixteen, to provoke or to annoy. Uh, 17, to scold, reprove, or rebuke. I like this one. 18, to grill, to sweat information out of uh, someone. And uh, 19, uh, to, to draw milk from a cow or a reindeer. Yeah. And it's uh, and here. Uh, so the semantics develop as follows. Um, the, the, earliest sense is, uh, the earliest sense is to press. Now, um, this is an a posteri- um, posteriori language that I'm working with, and so it develops from um, a Proto-Germanic uh, root, and that's a prangana, which meant to press. So, uh, your earliest senses here are going to be, um, you know, to to adjust, you know, to press into corners or to adapt to, but also to grill, um, to or to scold. Those are going to be your earlier senses. Um, and press uh, develops into a sense to uh, to set an order or to arrange, and from set an order, it uh, uh, develops into a sense to be crafty. And so, at that point, you know the, the sense is about amusement, but also to frustrate or to vex, uh, to tease, to poke fun at, or to annoy. That's when those develop. Uh, from to be crafty, to be mischievous. So that's when the uh, the senses of play begin to develop. And then finally, uh, from to play uh, as a game, uh, to play as an instrument. That, that, so that's the final sense there. Wow, yeah. That's really interesting, especially taking into consideration that it is a posteriori, and so you had to work within sort of historical context. Um, but it's interesting to see the, the etymology of the word play in English and the different meanings that its forebears have had throughout the different proto-languages and in Old English and stuff. So it's, it, it's really interesting to compare like how you've made that sort of semantic pathway um, uh, and, and to kind of look at it in context of the, of the um, semantic pathway that play in English has gotten over the years and over its, uh, you know, over its predecessors a year. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've, you know, words for like breaking and cutting, th- those are fairly easy to work out um, because they have, um, you know, fairly concrete semantics. But uh, words like uh, for recreation, those are, those are a little bit more difficult. And I, and I find that it's uh, a little bit trickier uh, to do those convincingly. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes there's one thing with, that gets... Without calking. Yeah, yeah, without calking, exactly. And sometimes there's one sort of aspect of a more complex action like that that gets emphasized. Like, it looks here, it says like in Old English, it says that in Plagan, it was also used to mean move rapidly or to occupy or busy oneself, to exercise, frolic, make sport of, or mock. And so it's interesting how the sort of idea of moving rapidly um, has kind of coalesced with 
playing or performing music. Um, yeah, that's that is uh, an interesting thing to to come at. So, yeah. like, where your word starts can end up indicating like what happens to it later. Um, uh, do you guys? also think about and this is partly can can do have to do with polysophy but also have to do with um uh with with language development do you think about cases where one word has pushed another out of its semantics um in certain ways yeah, actually, that um the the word that i i just brought up um um uh, um has done that up until a point. So, um, so yeah, let's let's talk maybe about um, uh, synonym avoidance right here. Yeah. Now, I got a good, I've got a good quote here from um, from the linguist Andrew Carstairs McCarthy. I've got one of his books in front of me, and that's uh, the evolution of morphology. And he's discussing he's discussing synonym avoidance, and he and he does that throughout the book. Um, but I'm on page 62 right now, and he says, as regards rancid and addled, the fact that they are regularly collocated with butter and eggs respectively shows that they are not interchangeable. The phrases rancid eggs and addled butter are ill-formed. One can imagine a variety of English that has just one word applicable to, to food with a meaning gone bad through having been kept too long. However, actual English is unnecessarily complicated, one might say. It has a variety of words uh, meaning gone bad. Rancid, addled, sour, rotten, stale, but each is limited um, in the foods that it can be applied to. So, bearing that in mind, uh, I've done that a little bit with uh, punzuo. So, if, uh, let's see, I think it's sense three or four. Let's see, I, I just want to. I just want to say, like that example seems like it has aged because rancid butter is fine to me. Oh, rancid like butter. The words. Um, rancid butter is the correct one. Uh, rancid eggs is the uh, oh, is the one yeah. he says is ill formed. Yeah, I always would apply rancid to anything with with oil in yeah. it. Anything that's oil based, I would say is rancid. But I wouldn't say anything else. Anything that's not explicitly oil based, I would never use rancid personally. Uh, neither would I. He's also he's also writing um, from New Zealand, so his his intuitions oh, okay. in our own. Um, but, uh, so in the case of, uh, of the, uh, the, uh, the word I just quoted, uh, number four, since number four is to play a keyboard, stringed, or percussion instrument, uh, but not a brass instrument. And that's because there's original, there's a, an older word, which is, uh, uh, vezuo, uh, which means to play an instrument. Uh, it's, uh, um, polysimus with the word to sing, to, to make an instrument sing. And, and that has been retained only for um for uh wind instruments um but it's been displaced by this other word punziwo uh for um string keyboard and percussion instruments oh yes okay uh i wish i i wish i could um find my estatiki dictionary because i have something similar in, in that um i have uh to play a uh, a string or percussion instrument, I believe, is tinsida, uh, which is like to hit music. Like it's, it's an incorporated mm -hmm. word, and it's to to strike music. But playing a woodwind instrument, I believe, 
is actually related to the 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 word for to sing. So I had a similar thing where you I I broke up playing instruments in in that way. I I, I again I wish I could find my old dictionary, but it has actually lost, and I will have to reconstruct it if I if I no, continue working on aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, but um, anyway, um, it's the and that's. And that's very naturalistic. Um, Tocharian, um, which was in part my inspiration um, for this um, uh, for Days of War, uh, yeah, does the same thing. It's, uh, it's strike music, sing music, depending upon the right. instrument. Um, right. Well, there, there's one more thing I should have mentioned when we were talking about small words, actually, that's just occurred to me. Um, and that's, in addition to small words, um, bound morphemes can be polysemous, too. Right. If you think about inflection, uh, inflection can be either a case of uh, homophony, you know, through paradigmatic leveling, uh, two dissimilar forms that have different etymologies uh, come to look the same. But can also be um, uh, a matter of one um, one inflectional uh, affix uh, coming to overtake the function of another, and in that sense, you know, um, developing a, a, a polysemy. And if you're doing some like non Western centric uh, languages, if you're working with um, uh, uh, polysynthesis, for example, uh, lexical um, uh, bound lexical affixes can can often be polysemous. And I have a, an example from uh, the Lachute seed language, and I, I love this one. I think this is a, a beautiful little collection of senses. Uh, they have this word uh, aldus. Which means to uh, means eye, as in the organ of sight, or uh, color, or um, bright, and it's a it's a bound morpheme, and so where are my examples? So you know you can use it in the sense of uh, you know the color of the leaves, or bright of the sky, or um, or, uh, or, or to have sore eyes. That's, that's the third wow. example. And I'll spare you my, my trying to show the seat because, you know, there are very few vowels and, uh, I don't know exactly how to do it. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think that's, that's something interesting that that might not necessarily occur to somebody who is you know, first setting, first setting out to, um, to play with it in their, uh, in their lexicon that the, uh, that the affixes themselves will also have. Um, for their meanings, and it's and it's um, important to think about those things. Uh, in R. M. W. Dixon's uh, *The Australian Languages*, uh, he has a a nice little diagram of the uh, etymological relationships between um, the different uh, uh, noun inflection uh, morphemes in, in Australian languages, which is really interesting to see that you know ergative. Uh, the ergative um, uh, affix will develop from the uh, from uh, locative or the instrumental, and will often be identical in form to these uh, to these other affixes. Still, yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Um, another thing I want to bring up is like sometimes words can end up like dragging other things with them. Um, and, um, this is, this is from, um, I'm slowly making my way through this, uh, 
theories of uh, lexical semantics by, I believe the name is uh, Dirk Kehrarts. Uh, this is this is a really uh, interesting book for conlingers. It's 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 a theory book, um, definitely. But it goes through the history of lexical semantics, and um, I'm only a little bit through. But one thing that pops up uh, is he has an example from French. Of now, let me let me just um, get this. So the 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 there's Sha meaning cat and sha meaning glue with a base of 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 starch. Uh, if I'm pr mispronouncing those, I will I will hear it from uh, uh, from Christoph. But um, but so they, they're spelled differently. One ends with a T and one ends with an S, but they're like close close to homophones, yeah. right? Because of this, there's a um, there's a word marufle, marufle, I guess, um, which means uh, like a big tomcat, right? Yeah. It, but then acquired the meaning of starch because of this association. That's actually just homophony oh, wow. in terms yeah. of, of cat and 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 yeah. the glue. Yeah, that's but, fantastic. But that homophony conditioned that word to take on a secondary meaning. Because of the relationship of the other two oh, words. Oh wow, that's amazing! I yeah, yeah that, that, that <laughs> makes me like, wanna, it makes me want to go out and gosh. do that now. I feel uh, like there's been some example of that in English that I came across once, but I don't remember what it would have been. But that's so interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the that's kind of rare. Um, that 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 there's. I mean, it, you you will find a lot of examples in here of of. All kinds of things, because he's trying to use like the examples that people gave in their own theories, and um, like another, um, you shouldn't. Th this is what I was going to bring up in the in the the beginning is like don't don't just make your homophones homophones or let them occur by chance and not like think a little bit about that because homophones do have an effect on how the rest of the language system develops. So there's that where that's probably kind of a rare thing for for like a homophone to call to drag an uh, a semantically related word into a new sense. Um but uh something that happens a lot is stuff like homophone avoidance. Uh, an example that he has is um, in in Gascon, uh, the Latin uh, gallus and catus merged to. Uh, I'm not sure if is this gat or chat. Um, I think Gascon has like chat, but anyway, they they merged to one form, oh. right? Um, in certain dialects, in those areas where that merger occurred, other things were brought in to mean chicken. Uh, so, because gallus, gallus, gallus means rooster, right? Other things got bring, brought in to mean rooster because rooster and cat being homophones is not really, <laughs> is, is, is kind of detrimental. Right. Yeah. Right? right? Especially right. in like a farming society. So, gallus and catus merging was not not good so they brought in uh like words meaning uh pheasant and uh there's what there's one that's that means 
curate that got pinched to, to mean oh. rooster? Curate? Um, I don't know, but but the the point is like there was this these this merger and like people didn't want to use the same word for both of them, so that left a void that let led other words into yeah. that space. Um and that could that could be a source of polysemy or it could be just a source of etymological changes. Yeah. Yeah, it's an uh, this is this is adjacent to what we're talking about, but um, but what you've what you've just mentioned really makes me think of um, avoidance registers in Australian languages. Uh, right. In these in, in these avoidance registers, uh, you know, so there there are certain taboo family members, and you're not allowed to to um, to use certain vocabulary around them, and so you have to. Uh, use another word, uh, and so there are ritually prescribed words that you use, and the origins of these words are really interesting. Sometimes they're borrowed from, um, sometimes they're borrowed from neighboring languages. Sometimes it seems that they're invented, that they are con words, that they are uh, nonsense words. Sometimes they're alterations um, through uh, affixation, etc., of other vocabulary words. But in in societies where um, uh, there are such avoidance registers, and there are taboo words. Sometimes vocabulary will consciously shift. If, for example, there's an important person whose name is a you know, commonly used enough word, and this person dies, uh, it's not unheard of in certain societies for people to avoid that word and have to substitute it with another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, that 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 is another another thing. And but I mean, where like. Again, the lexicon is a system, and those words have to come from somewhere. So either they're going to shed their old meaning and, and leave a void, or they're going to become polysemous and like start referring to the other thing. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be afraid of like overlapping senses either, because in, in real life, in, in real languages, like the meaning of a word is not really what's in the dictionary. The meaning in people's heads is like they develop a prototype and things that are surrounding that prototype uh, that are similar enough end up being called that word. But the boundaries of words are fuzzy. Like, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the, it's... it's um, Let's let's think. Oh, um, like think about a knife and a sword, right? What exactly is the distinction between a knife and a sword? Mm -hmm. Is it's it's like there are swords that have single blades, so it's not it's not that. Even though knives usually only have a, a single edge, like there are single edge swords too. Length. Well, a machete is about as long as some very short swords. It's not necessarily length. Is it? Is it purpose, perhaps, or is it breadth? Like maybe knife is right. a broader, a broader yeah. category than sword. And sword is a usually big knife that you use to probably hurt people with. Yeah, sword. Well, well, swords are always right, specialized yeah. weapons. You don't really use swords for like tomato cutting, usually. 
Some knives are just tools. Some are actually specialized weapons. But it's 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 it, that's that's where the fuzziness comes in. Uh, another thing is like um, I I think about this in the supermarket now uh, because uh, like I go to buy animal crackers and I'm like, is are animal crackers a cookie or a cracker? Yeah, that's a problem. Right. <laughs> 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 well, I the the knife thing reminds me of something I did in Tarkin, which is um one of my other languages, and I have a word for, that's usually translated knife, but it's always knife in the context of knife being a weapon because its etymology is related to the word for blood. Right. So it essentially just means something like a bleeder, oh. something that makes someone. So you can't use it to mean like. Oh, hand me that knife. I'm going to cut the bread because if you did, it would be like really sinister. Um, so kind of, I was thinking about the purposes of the different tools rather than their shape or form exactly. And I was like, I'm going to make words based on intention and purpose of a tool rather than how they just look or are. Um, so that was kind of one of the results of that. And then the word for like a knife as a tool, as a nonviolent tool, is something else. So it's, you know, you never have to worry about that. But English, you don't know, right? So Yeah. Um, looking, looking at different languages uh, will help you out with this, too. Because I was just thinking, of, just, just thought of this. Because like the, the knife and swords this thing just popped out. But um, in Chinese, the distinction is mainly just double-edged versus single-edged. Zian is specifically a double-edged sword, a straight double-edged sword. And Dao can mean a knife or it can mean a single-edged sword. Hmm. Um, and there's, there's even compounds of Dao. Zian Dao means scissors. So it's like, oh. um, I forget what Zian is, but it's, it's like a, it's, they're like a specific type of knife, quote-unquote. But they're, the, the individual blades are single-edged. That's interesting. Yeah, it's similar for the word for scissors in real and being a twin, knot, twin knife. Uh, basically connected. Yeah, yeah, good. So that that that's 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 sort of a, another thing, and and so where you're putting boundaries between words can end up affecting where they end up in other places with the polysemy. Where we started talking about polysemy, but we're kind of talking about lexicon building <laughs> right. in general. Yeah. Well. Well, it, it is all related, and um, you know, and and you you do have to draw from other sources because there's no, you know, there's no book that you can buy on how to build a polysemous lexicon. You know, you have to kind of feel it out for yourself as you as you go along. Yeah, and a lot of things can help you with that. Like, there's a lot of different resources that are not about that specifically, but all work towards the general goal of like. Like these books on semantics and um, the book you mentioned earlier, um, or I, I guess you mentioned it in the notes of the, um, what is it, Women, Fire, and Other Dangerous Things. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, would, you like to, to, would you like to talk about, like, um, inspiration and how to, uh, how to get started doing this and how to train yourself in this? Uh, would this be a good time yeah. for that? Yeah. So, uh you have a list here, uh, Zeke, I guess you put it, is bilingual dictionaries. That's great. Wiktionary. Wiktionary is always part of my process. I might go over that in a, in a minute. Uh, Williams Papers, so the Conlanger Thesaurus, uh, and World Lexicon of Grammaticalization. I would add to that clicks, 
Yes. Um, I, I, I use clicks in a very specific way in, in my process. So I use uh, clicks essentially to, to double check the work that I've already done. Um, I want to make sure that when I'm, um, that uh, if I've come up with a, uh, a constellation of senses, that they're not too specific to one language family that, you know, one, one existent that lang language family. You know, I don't want to create something that feels like it's from um, Southeast Asia necessarily. I don't want to create something that feels like it's like it's uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa. I want my um, polysemies to be um, you know, cross-linguistically sound, um, idiosyncratic in their own way, but I want them to to feel like they belong to the other vocabulary in the language and not to some other part of the world. So, um, so and, and clicks is great for that because clicks is very um, general. You know, you're you're not going to get some some in depth reading and food for thought from clicks. Uh, clicks will um, point you in different directions and let you know if something you're thinking about is is as is done by natlangs or not. But uh, it's not like Wiktionary, for example, where it'll give you um, a fairly idiosyncratic list of meanings. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, um, that's that's. I uh, I do things differently from you. Uh, I will go into that in a minute. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, for the first first thing I want to say is um, uh, I get what you were. Yeah. So I get what you are talking about there with not wanting to be too specific because um, this is totally unrelated to the lexicon. But um, when I was working with his with um, Isataki. Um, and I was wanting to do um, a, uh, a a direct inverse agreement system. I did not really settle on actually doing that until I found a paper that was comparing the Algonquian languages, which I'd already heard of, and um, well, uh, er, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, or er, Yaorong, or. Er, it's a Sino-Tibetan subfamily. And because of that, since I had it attested in multiple language families and I could look at how it worked in different language families, then I like was able to make my own system that hopefully is more like unique and not and not ripping off uh, Ojibwe. Uh, but uh, yeah. so uh, but Back to the, the the tools, like Margaret, do you use any particular tools or resources when you're trying to work on uh, Lissamy or Lexicon building? You know, it hadn't, like, it really occurred to me to use any particular sources, but, like, I kind of just got inspired and, like, would remember things that I had read about different languages or, like, in my own daily work with languages, of, you know, whatever I'm doing, right. uh, not just calling, but, like, linguistics and whatever. I would, you know, just see things and think like, oh, that's a really good point. Or like, man, yeah, I guess, you know, I would have a word in my in a language and feel like it was too relaxing. And I would start to like play with it just sort of creatively and be like, okay, let's see where this can go. But now that you guys mentioned it, it's a really good, you know, idea to kind of check up on some of these resources for new ideas and to kind of just check yourself and make sure you're not like relaxing somebody else's semantics like web or whatever because uh, I want you know that's something that I try to avoid in conlanging is you know in a priori conlanging especially 
I don't want to like copy anything from anybody really. It's supposed to be just like a synthesis of what I know as a person. Um, but that's a really good point that you make. And these resources are actually really good ideas. So I haven't really used anything particular myself. I kind of just go for it. Um, but these, yeah, I'll probably start to like do a little more in-depth, like directed research now that you've mentioned these sources, because they look like really good ideas. Well, I, I, I do want to say you're, you actually do field work. So you have access yeah. to inspiration that a lot of conlangers don't necessarily have. So that's true. And I think that like a lot of my inspiration, it just comes from like all sorts of sources all over the place. Like, I don't even know exactly what they are. Yeah. So like that, that's, that's totally understandable. My process, uh, when I was doing Lexember, actually, I was doing this is, um, uh, and I, there I was doing etymology, but, um, Etymology and polysemy are not, are basically cousins. Uh, so it's not uh, that uh, far away. But I was, so I would look at clicks first, actually. Okay. Because for me, clicks was like a place to get inspiration and say, okay, like I want this word. I was, I was doing etymology. So I like, I want, I want to see what this word could possibly come from. So knowing where what links there are in in the the clicks uh are good clicks doesn't have everything yeah. it's just a very high frequency concepts so sometimes it just doesn't show me anything um right. and other right. times it shows me a map and i'm not like satisfied another thing that i used for inspiration was stet which is uh it's a it's the sino tibetan etymological dictionary so that's specific to one language family but it still is pretty good just to get a sense of like realistic changes. You kind of have to wade through it because uh, a whole lot of the time you'll look up a word and like everybody just derived it from something that meant that word way back in in some some like higher branch in in the in the in the Sino Tibetan family. I don't know if that's an artifact of the reconstruction or an actual like fact that a lot of words just didn't change. Yeah. So that's a that's that's another part of that. And then I will go to dictionary and I don't know if this is this is what you do uh Zeke, but my my thing with the dictionary is I'll go there, I'll read the English etymology, maybe I'll click back through to like Proto-Indo-European. And I will go down uh, and find the sense of the word in the translations that I want and click through the to the different languages. And yeah. it's very spotty. Yeah. Uh, highly studied languages, you'll get more information than, than less studied languages. But I often will get languages from several different families that have different ranges of polysemy and different etymologies for these words um, that like are like satisfying for me to try to brainstorm ideas um, and and wiktionary has everything it, it does and 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 wiktionary is very hit or miss uh, there are a couple of uh, wiktionary uh, you know um, translations of of um, of English Wiktionary uh, collections that I think are far better than others. Uh, the Arabic one is pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. Latin 
Latvian is very good. Um, I use Latvian a lot for chemical, which is my uh, my Germanic um, a posteriori project because um, it's spoken in the uh, spoke, spoken in the extreme north of Europe, and uh, Latvian is very good. Um, Scottish Gaelic is very good. Um, the Wiktionary is very. Um, uh, 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 when, when you when you look at um, Chinese or anything that uses Chinese script, you have to be careful how you read it because sometimes it has both the character etymology and the spoken etymology, the the actual language etymology. But sometimes it's like one or the other, and it's not always a hundred percent clear which one you're referring to. So mm-hmm. you have to be a little careful. But still, like. That's like a double information when you get both of those. It's really cool. Um, yeah, actually, absolutely, yeah. But there's, they, yeah, you're right. It's it's spotty, and like um, you'll get one language that has a lot of information and one that doesn't. So, but it's a lot easier than trying to. I think I have like a seven language multilingual dictionary, but I never use that. Because it's a paper dictionary, and I just don't want to page through everything. So yeah. <laughs> now I, I, I've a, I actually have <clears throat> I have my Cardiol library sitting here next to me. It's uh, uh, so there are five bilingual dictionaries that I've that I've used for inspiration with Cardiol. Um, I can really recommend some of them if uh, somebody wants to add a little bit of um, a sub-Saharan African feel. To uh, to one of their conlang projects, Dent and uh, Nyembezi's Scholars Zulu Dictionary is incredibly good. So is the Comprehensive Oromo English Dictionary by Tulun Gamta. And these I actually got. Well, I can say this: if anybody is in the uh, New York City area, I really heartily recommend East Village Books. So it's like this tiny little place. It's on St. Mark's Place. It's a tiny little basement shop. It's like the size of my living room. Uh, it's, it's not a very nice place. They have like unfinished hardwood floors, but it's just like so charming in, in, in old New York. Um, and they have a linguistic section. Oh, nice. And, you know, the Strand doesn't even have a linguistic section. But, you know, this <laughs> tiny little basement shop has a linguistic section, and you can buy you know, some, some pretty interesting esoterica in there for under $10. Uh, it's all used. And so my, uh, my copy of, of the Scholar Zulu's Dictionary, I got for six fifty. I looked it up on, on Amazon today. On Amazon Marketplace, it's going for like $25. And my copy of Atilahun Gamta's Dictionary, uh, $13, that's like 600 bucks on Amazon right now. It's a, it's a rare book. So yeah, like if you're looking for bilingual dictionaries, uh, uh, use bookstores. That's the way to go. Absolutely. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Okay. Um, now uh, I just realized that we. I, I just uh, am seeing that uh, we are getting very long on time. So I think it's time to start wrapping things up. But um, yeah, the um, Zeke, if you can if you can list all those resources in the in the show in the uh, doc, I can put them in the show notes. But uh, absolutely, I'm up now. That would be great. But yeah, so here's here's what I want to be a takeaway of. There's 
I think there's two angles that you want to be looking from that are coming out of this. One is the lexicon as a system, which um, is going to help you define like where where words need to be and where where things can end up expanding out. And the other is the story of individual words. And like we haven't touched on everything. Like there's more, much more to this than even that. Like words can be influenced by foreign words that are like coming in and 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 causing the 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 uh, the semantics of a native word to to, to change to to conform to it. There there are all kinds of things that can that can happen and. A change in environment for the speakers can can be a big thing we haven't touched on. So, but the the main thing is like each individual word has a story, and then the whole lexicon fits together as a as as a system. And if you can balance those two things, and yeah. be think creatively about where your words can go, then you can you can do good good examples of plissima. Hmm? Oh, oh, uh, yeah. I was just um. I think to kind of wrap up like what uh, you had said earlier, I think that it's important to remember that none of your lexemes exist in a void. Like even though you can make an individual, you know, lexeme, an individual word and say, okay, that's that word on to the next. As we've seen, uh, they can influence each other. They're all in there together. And, you know, in the minds of the speaker, there are not just a series of single words, but there's this whole web. Of connections and so sometimes when you pull on one string it can affect something else so i think that using stuff like um, etymology polysemy lexicography all this stuff can be really sort of interrelated because the lexemes themselves are really interrelated just by their nature i was thinking uh, on, an, on a parting note um i think a, a in insofar as the the nuts and bolts, the the craft of actually putting these things together is concerned, um, a, a word of caution: you can go too far. Um, <laughs> you know, you 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 want to practice naturalism in this, and so you want to keep your uh, you want to keep your um, your collection of senses to be fairly tight. And I, as an example, in in preparing for this talk, I was I was flipping through my copy of Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. And uh, there's a discussion on on a gerbil noun class in there, which you know has has a lot of overlap with polysemy because it's about prototypes and and metaphorical extension stuff like that. And I was thinking about there's uh, so in the gerbil system of grammatical gender, and cigarettes are assigned to one uh, gender. And I was trying to come up with as many different possible reasons why this could be, and and I thought, okay, so it's possible that it's because if you open up a bag of flour, often dust will come out, and cigarettes give off smoke. And I imagined, you know, if if that is the primary sense that if it's uh, if it's dust or smoke, you know, where where you where in if gerbil were a conline, where could you develop it from there? So the, I immediately thought of fog. It's it's very foggy here, especially in the mornings uh, this time of year. And uh, so I would feel that a constellation of meanings surrounding uh, flower, fog, and um, smoke 
I feel like that would be a good polysemy. But my mind continued to, to go along this path. And uh, if I pushed it any farther, um, I think I'd be going too far. So for an example, after fog, I thought, what does fog do? It impairs, uh, it impairs visibility when you're on the road, for example. So perhaps uh, an extension from fog would be blindness. Deafness relates to, this, to blindness because they're both privation of senses. They're both uh, in the same domain of experience. Uh, so it would be possible from blindness to develop into deafness. Um, and that all makes sense. It makes sense on paper, but I don't feel like you would ever nat uh, find that in a nat lang underneath one. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think that's where you're like you're you're free associating and 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 developing out this this word story ends up butting up up against the, the lexicon of this as a system and what what is the lexicon doing like you you extend to blindness uh, that's like starting to get weird but not that bad but then extending from blindness to deafness i can see that happening on its own but it's really a bit of a stretch for it to still have the meaning of fog and smoke and flower and then extend to blindness and to deafness. Yeah. Because people are gonna want to have those distinct and also the the all the rest of the constellation of meanings seem to be more like blindness being on the outside because all of these things can impair vision, right? Yeah. I think like uh, it, it's it's okay to make sometimes these big leaps, but I think that to make several big leaps in one uh lexeme is kind of pushing it a little bit occasionally yeah. uh not that you couldn't do it if you liked it i mean if you like that obviously go for it but like in terms of naturalism i think it starts to to just kind of uh, my suspension of disbelief is just kind of you know uh destroyed just briefly by that i think it, yeah. it, some of that if you if you were to take those types of leaps and separate them into two different parts of the lexicon and show me at separate times i would be fine with it but <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, for most purposes of conlangers, whether it is a naturalistic conlang, even like things like an oxlang or an englang, like unless you're just like this is a personal language, I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, there's a sense of people have to speak this language. Yeah. So at some point you're making so many logical leaps that either you've got to lose some of the earlier senses uh, and make it like a chain semantic shift, yeah. or you're 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 gonna have to stop spreading it out. So that that that's a that's a nice little word of warning at the end here after we've gotten people excited about making big long dictionary entries. Exactly. But, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so. Have fun going out there. Uh, do some reading and some some work, and figure out like you know maybe go through your existing dictionary entries and say can this have a couple more senses? Uh, that's one thing I've done before, and it's very interesting to to work on. Or or as you're making words, think about like where can this word go? But um, Hopefully, we've given people some ideas. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would say a, a final, 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 final thought is that, um, you know, um, this is, you know, if, uh, if you're somebody who, um, especially for younger Konglangers, if you're trying to get your friends engaged in what you're doing and they're, you know, and they're not particularly interested. I remember making languages myself in high school and my friends being excited for me that I was excited about this, but not enthusiastic themselves. Your vocabulary is a great way to get people involved in what you're doing. Um, at the Philadelphia Conlang Salon, one of, one of the, uh, the guys who would, uh, we would meet there with, uh, John Martin, said, after all, people publish all these popular linguistics books about kooky words in the world's languages, but you'll be hard-pressed to find on, on a shelf in a bookstore a popular language book about some kooky syntactic structure. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you... If you if you, if you want to talk uh, to your friends about what you're doing, vocabulary is a great way to get the puck, too. Yep. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. People love to hear about strange meanings of words that they don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's great. So, yeah, share it with your friends, too. Uh, all right. So, uh, thank you, Margaret and Zeke, for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, and hope you guys have a, a nice uh, night. And uh, I'm ho- and to our listeners, I'm hoping that you guys have some new inspiration for your conlangs and for polysemy and just lexicon building in general. And with all of that said, I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com and follow us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter by searching for Conlangery. Conlangery is entirely supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. As little as a dollar will help us out. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Margaret Ransdell-Green, Graham Hill, and all of those who have chosen to support us. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. You may use Conlangery episodes for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to us and you release your work under the same license. Conlangery's website is created by Bianca Richards, Our theme music is by Null Device, and transcriptions of our episodes have been provided by Sarah Doparella. Casada. Casada.